Sponsorship of the KQED live audio stream comes from Xfinity Mobile, featuring customized wireless plans. Customers can choose unlimited, buy the gig, shared data, or a mix of both and switch it up anytime. Learn more at XfinityMobile.com. From KQED in San Francisco, this is the Writer's Block. This is Doug Mack. I'm a travel writer based in Minneapolis. And I've written a book called Europe on Five Wrong Turns a Day, One Man, Eight Countries, One Vintage Travel Guide. It's a travel memoir about touring Europe with a 1963 edition of Europe on $5 a day uh, and my mom's letters from her own days as a grand tourist back in 1967. So what I'm going to read to you is a scene from the Paris chapter of my journey. Although Arthur Frommer says it's the left bank where you'll find what remains of authentic Paris, he has one major find on the right bank, to which he devotes nearly an entire page of praise. A locals-only gem called Le Grand Colbert. It's, quote, the cheapest restaurant of Paris, he says, and it is the oddest restaurant in the world, and the only explanation I've conceived for it is that it exists primarily to serve the clerks and secretaries of the Paris Stock Exchange, which is located one long avenue block away. The most amazing thing about the Colbert is that it has a huge, gilded interior straight out of the era of Toulouse-Lautrec. Paper tablecloths only, terribly crowded, get there at 1 p.m. to miss the heaviest lunchtime rush. As instructed, I arrived around 1 p.m. When I peeked in the window, I could see that the interior was every bit as magnificent as advertised, with high ceilings framed by elaborate crowned molding and seemingly acres of wooden booths. There was a menu in the window, listing classic bistro fare plus a few nods to our globalized age, including lamb stew curry style with basmati rice. Nearly everything was over 20 euros, so much for cheapest restaurant of Paris. I nervously fingered the 50 euro note in my pocket, which was supposed to last me a couple of days more. There was something far more remarkable in one of the other windows, a movie poster for the Jack Nicholson-Diane Keaton romantic comedy Something's Gotta Give. An article from The Australian accompanied the poster. Its headline read, Star Brasserie Can't Stop Counting Its Chickens. I skimmed the first paragraph and figured out the gist of the article. A key scene of the movie was filmed at Le Grand Colbert, and tourists have been flocking there ever since. So much, too, for being a hidden locals-only spot. I was hungry, so I took a photo of the article, intending to peruse the rest later. I glanced at my reflection in the window and hastily combed my hair with my fingers then took a deep breath and walked inside. I was greeted by a ferret of a mater d' who visibly recoiled at the sight of me. I silently translated what he was thinking. Meld, another American who saw that movie. I was suddenly acutely aware that I was a disheveled backpacker who didn't belong here, even in spite of my clean, if rumpled shirt and finger-combed hair. The maitre d' beckoned, turned, and walked purposefully as he led me to a table away from the rest of the dwindling lunch crowd, as though quarantining me. The waitress presented me with a menu, and I scanned it for something at least marginally in line with my budget and general culinary cowardice. Aha! Roasted chicken. Yeah, sounds good. Serve it quick and get me out of here, s'il vous plaît. It arrived with a little dish of palm frites. Even though I didn't order them, the menu had them as a side dish, five euros. For a moment, I thought, awesome, free food. Maybe this place wasn't so bad. Or or maybe my anxiety kicked in full force. It was more plausible that they were going to charge me double, 
triple quintuple as part of one of those mess with the tourists hustles that modern guidebooks warn you about, but my vintage Fromer guide did not. I lightly touched the 50 euro note again, then pulled my camera out of my bag. I scrolled through my recent photos as I chewed my chicken, which, by the way, was actually quite tasty, the herb rub and tender meat perfectly balanced. I stopped on the photo of the article in the window and zoomed in to read the text. My jaw froze mid-mastication, then fell as I read. The star of the story was the Mater D, outspoken in his annoyance with tourists, and especially tired of those who, quote, ring up and want to book the table Jack Nicholson and Diane Keaton ate at. No, I thought, recalling his quarantining. Surely he hadn't... Weeks later, at home, I tracked down a copy of the movie and watched it in a panic and found my answer, yes. That's where he sat me, the annoying American table. I kept reading the blurry text on my camera and learned that the staff was also sick of everyone always ordering the same meal as the stars, which was, of course, roast chicken with a side of palm frites. I wasn't just a disheveled backpacker and a stereotypical American tourist, which was bad enough. On top of that, I was a full-on Diane Keaton groupie, a Jack Nicholson stalker, a glazed-eyed, hardcore romantic comedy obsessive. The server walked by, intentionally looking away as she passed. I strongly considered hiding under the table. Part of me wanted to call out, No, 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 you don't understand. I'm not one of them. Sacre bleu, what a misunderstanding. I am a journalist, a scholar, a a tourist reenactor, not a real one. Somehow, though, I wasn't sure that pulling out my 1963 guidebook would be compelling evidence of my normalness and lack of bizarre obsessions. Arthur, man, I muttered. What are you doing to me? My eyes darted around the room, taking in every detail, trying to distract myself from the queasiness settling into my gut. No wonder Hollywood came calling. This place was perfect Paris. No soundstage necessary. The hydro-like Beaux-Arts light fixtures, the jazz concert posters behind the bar, the palm trees and massive azure urns. Every time my gaze crossed paths with the bartenders, I noticed that he was staring at me with an unsettling mixture of confusion and contempt. I tried to focus on my food and reassure myself that I was imagining things, unfairly projecting on this guy, the famous French snootiness that I still had yet to experience. He's just staring off into space, I told myself. He's he's bored. He's, you know, pondering Sartre or something Parisian. I glanced back at him for confirmation. Oh, God, no. He really was staring, glowering at me. I pulled up my notebook and spent the rest of the meal doodling and jotting down random observations, my best pensive expression on my face, my eyes fixed on the page, certain that if I looked up, I'd find an entire row of Parisians leering and smirking at me. Maybe if I kept doing this, I told myself, my ruminative countenance would prove to him that I was truly not just another tourist, but an incognito philosopher who had taken a stroll over from the Sorbonne for lunch. Maybe my my black leather moleskin, notebook of Hemingway and Chatwin, would win him over. I recalled that Jack Nicholson had also played an adult writer in one of his more famous roles in The Shining. My blank page, like his, was my curse. Filling it was my new obsession. I was running out of room in the notebook, but I vowed my pen wouldn't stop until the bill arrived. I wrote in the margins, my text running sideways, filling in gaps, becoming ever smaller. Just going to keep writing and not look up, says one line, because this sucks. 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 This sucks.
To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, visit kqed.org slash writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.